This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. I'm Kimberly Morrow-Leong from George Mason University and a guest host for this episode. Joining me is Jer Comfrey, the Joseph D. Moore Distinguished Professor of Mathematics Education at North Carolina State University. Last year, she was named a 2017 AERA Fellow, the highest honor that recognizes research contributions to education by the American Educational Research Association. I consider myself extremely fortunate to substitute for Sam. Jair's pioneering research into students' mathematical thinking has not only influenced the field, but has had a significant effect on my work as well. Let's start back at the beginning. How did your career in mathematics education begin? So I knew I wanted to be a math teacher a long time ago. I started out tutoring kids by fourth grade of friends, and I even still have my ninth grade civics essay of what I wanted to be, and it was to be a math teacher. So um, I always always enjoyed it and found explaining math to people easy and realized that a lot of my friends didn't find it easy, so I wanted to help them be successful. And then from there, in terms of going into mathematics education, I taught high school for a while and then decided, oh, actually, what happened was I took part in a migrant education program that was across the states to try and think about how to help students that were moving from place to place to amass the skills to graduate and met some people on that project that were um, had advanced degrees uh, and decided that I would pursue one for myself. So grad school, what was the focus of your dissertation research? So I was a um, student at Cornell University, and at that time there was a strong movement towards conceptual change and the use of philosophy of science in informing how what we know about under what conditions people will change their beliefs about something. So I worked with uh, Ken Strike and George Posner there and Joe Novak, um, and they were all in science ed. My professor was Dr. Geiselman, and... He was in mathematics education and taught pre-calculus there, so I taught with him and for him there. And then I also worked with David Henderson down in the uh, Department of Mathematics. He's a geometer Mm -hmm. and a first-rate teacher, and so he was the inspiration behind a lot of focus on how you really think about meaningful learning. And what was it like earning your Ph.D. in that era? You know, I think... I don't know that it really changes that much, to be honest. I was thinking about this the other day. I tell my students this all the time, which is usually with my students, I find out that when they come to me, they're not sure what they want to do, but somehow something keeps coming up for them. You could be talking about curriculum, and if they're interested in mathematical modeling, somehow they bring a question up that tries to connect it back. So I guess what I would say is I think I was the same way, that that there were... Um, topics that I that I found really interesting. My particular dissertation was on theories of number, different notions of number that underlie the notions in calculus. And again, I, I, I just got really interested in reading the mathematical side of this philosophy of science and applying it to calculus reasoning. 
so, you know, I think I had a similar experience. The other thing I was saying about similar is just like everybody, when you're going through it, you're working and you're working, and you're not sure whether you've accomplished anything. And then I think just like all the time, somebody will go through a point of crisis where they're like realizing and wondering whether they can pull this off. And then there's a bit of a crisis as you get through that with a good advisor, and um, and then you come out the other end. And before you have to defend that uh, dissertation, um, by the time you defend it, you're the expert, and uh, you start to realize that transition from novice to expert is one which just takes consistent hard work and um, careful thinking. Can you tell me a little bit about the parable that you began your dissertation with? <laughs> That's a very funny question. All right, so my <laughs> so my dissertation began with the with the story of, of a flock of um, ostriches um, who see things coming that are uh, potentially important to see, and instead of dealing with them, they put their heads down in the sand um, and think somehow because they can't see anything that the problems are going to go away. And the reason for that really was to say I wanted to be the kind of professor that faced the issues and, and took on the hard challenges, not somebody who hid my head in the sand. <laughs> it's funny. It, the, but one of the funny things about that, I'll just tell you, is that my first husband gave me, took my master's degree and had it copied into a another version of it he took the seal out and he replaced it with ostriches with their heads heads in the ground <laughs> and he turned it into a doctor of yeah. philosophy instead of a master's degree so I, I still have that little em- emblem from that uh, from that fable <laughs> that's funny so a key idea in your early career was the splitting or the equipartitioning conjecture what led you to that idea and what role did that research play in setting the direction of your research career? So that's an excellent and interesting question. So I had done work, my first work in that area was on exponential functions. And the issue that was interesting to me was if you're doing something like compound interest and say it's a 5% per year um, interest, the students would always say what you said, I'm going to go three years out. They would always take that 005 times 0.05 times 0.05 and it would get smaller and smaller and they wouldn't be making more money and they would be frustrated but they and the question was why can't they think of it as it's the amount you have times 1.05 times 1.05 and that led me to think hard about repeated multiplication because it occurred to me that repeated multiplication had a, a certain characteristic that was tied into a kind of growth that's recursive and based on similarity. So that was the first thing, and then just kept pushing that back to younger and younger ages, and um, Professor Fishbein had come out with this notion of these um, primitive notions of different kinds of concepts, and he had for division, he had two, partitive and quotative division, partitive being kind of a sharing process and quotative being a kind of repeated um, subtraction, or these days we often call it measurement um, division. And yet, for multiplication, he only had repeated addition. And that was, the lack of symmetry of that was really bothering me. And I was like, well, there's got to be another multiplication that you can think of in relation to that. And so, and it it should go um, with the notion of partitive, but it should be a partitive multiplicative act rather than division. So that started it out. um, And that led me to a conjecture that, 
very young children have two different concepts uh, when they are starting out um, learning about quantity or quantitative relations, one of which is counting, which is very well reinforced by parents and, and heavily worked on in schools. But the other was this notion of splitting. So that got me interested in talking to little kids and really looking at different situations where they were engaging in fair share uh, kinds of notions. That allowed me to build out the notion that you have a splitting structure, um, just as the counting structure starts with zero and the repeated action is continually adding one, then you have a splitting structure where the starting point is one and you might be continually doubling and doubling and doubling. So that's how it got going. We had started with this conjecture that, in fact, multiplication, division, and ratio um, actually codified each other. So rather than seeing it just as multiplication, it's inverse, it's division, it's really looking at it and saying, no, actually, there's three things in there, and you can only make sense of them if you see how they're interrelated. Um, and then we went back looking for other kinds of talk about that, and we found that real little kids were always talking about one half of or one-fourth of, and we, were, we realized that we had overlooked it because we think of one over n times something, which is fraction multiplication, which you don't do till fourth grade, and we were just ignoring the prevalence of it in language among little kids, and so part of it was all of a sudden tuning your ears to recognizing that, that they were making sense, not just of it as a quantity itself, but as an operator on other quantities. And that's when we were like, oh, there's early multiplication right here. Can you give an example of that for the listers of an operator operating on a quantity? Oh, just notions like um, half of the kids want to have popcorn this afternoon. And they would understand that in Working with that, then they would take the group of kids and do a kind of dealing operation, one, 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 until they could solve that kind of problem and tell you how many people were in each group. And and one thing you have to realize about splitting is that if kids do it, they can do it through folding, new symmetry, so they can do it through dealing. If they do it through dealing and they know that they're dealing rounds starting at one spot and going around the circle and then around again and around again, when they get done, they know they have the right answer of a fair share. Now, it does turn out they name it by counting the number of things in each pile or maybe checking by counting, but the mistake people make is they think that splitting depends on counting because you, the answer you give depends on counting, and yet that's only an indicator that we don't want two number systems, so we coordinate between splitting and counting. Thank you. That's very interesting. I am speaking with Jer Comfrey about her career in mathematics education. Among her many accolades, Jer was appointed by the National Governors Association to the Common Core Standards Validation Committee. She also directs the SUDS team in developing new learning maps and related diagnostic assessments to support personalized learning. Jer, your work has spanned a lot of ideas over a long time period. What contribution are you most proud of? Well, it's a toss-up between the splitting work and the um, new work, which is on learning trajectories, on thinking about how to build these diagnostic measures. 
So the splitting work and the development of that into a learning trajectory that spans, I think it's uh, 16 levels, I think was a really important contribution, um, particularly because we were able to go into the literature and see that there's people who had been sharing holes and knew how to talk about it, and people in there who knew how to share collections that came out evenly and talk about it. And then there were the cases of the people who were talking about sharing collections that did not come out even. And so we took those cases, put them together, and were able to build this learning trajectory and watch young kids work on tasks connected to it and really, I think, capture a developmental sequence that makes a difference for setting up kids' success in fractions, multiplication, and division, which at the time particularly of that work was just somewhat neglected and it was always delayed until third grade rather than recognizing the early part. So that would be one. Um, the second one is the work that, on, that started with Turn On CC Math, uh, which is a website where we, I built out of hexagons of uh, the Common Core Standards but showed within those the learning trajectories. And as you said, I was on the validation committee for the National uh, Governors Association, CCSSO, and I had been taking the standards copies home every time and cutting them up and building these trajectories to check and see if, in fact, they were the progressions in there were, were sufficient and then give feedback to the writers from my perspective. I also convened a conference and brought the learning trajectory researchers in so that they could inform the standards. So I love that work, and I'm very proud of the work we're doing now, which is to, we have a new thing called suds.co uh, and it's a new learning map um, with nine big ideas for middle grades that drive down to the trajectories and um, it's a actually digital learning system so that teachers and kids can see how these ideas are built up hierarchically from the learning trajectories to constructs to clusters to to big ideas um, and then on the back end of that we built diagnostic assessments that can be taken by students and teachers in real time and give immediate feedback on the kids and the class's progress on learning trajectories. The reason I really like that work is because it's an intention to, I, I just like synthesis work. So what I was trying to do was synthesize the research on learning trajectories and make it accessible to practicing teachers. Research is really hard to find. And you have to know where to dig it up and have to listen for a long time. So what I was trying to do was to think of what's a system that makes that available in a way to teachers um, so that they can act on it, so that they can be more student-centered in their instruction because they get an ear for kids' ideas. Proud of that work because it it's a new kind of um, assessment practice called classroom assessment and at the same time it helps teachers build their base of knowledge and helps them to act increasingly uh, professionally and successfully. In addition to your contributions in the form of multiplicative thinking, you played a key role in developing the ideas of learning trajectories as we just talked about and then later the bridging standards. How did a research methodology emerge from your work and what needs did they originally satisfy? So my primary methodology is um, design studies. Uh, and the reason I, that's my primary methodology is my greatest interest is in understanding how kids learn 
and recognizing that the way they see something may not be the same way that adults see it. Uh, so that methodology started with clinical interviews where you Piaget had developed one's ability to push and to continue to ask questions. And the rule of thumb was you're trying to follow their reason until you, reasoning until you understand it. You're not trying to do a structured interviewer. I haven't come with you. Um, that evolved into notions that uh, we wanted to do, we wanted to potentially have more students involved in it, and we wanted to look at how the conjectures around what you're doing with kids evolve over time as you give them new tasks. So that led to two different terms. It could be called teaching experiments or design studies, but they were developed to both study innovation in the context in situ, where it's being actually played out among students and teachers and you're observing, to also then look back on that retrospectively and to try and uh, figure out what, you, what kind of conclusions you can draw. And how do you see this work now in the era of the Common Core and similar standards? Um, so I'm going to be a little bit tougher on the Common Core. So I appreciate the Common Core, and, and I think all standards are compromises, so you need to um, be willing to do that because the important thing, just in terms of the scale of what we can do, was to get agreement on them. Um, I think they do have parts of learning trajectories in them, but I also think it got confused in some senses because some of the mathematics community thought that learning trajectories were sort of logical sequences that they could think up on their own, and based on what they thought, they would assume that describes how, how kids learn. I think those are logical sequences. I think people who do learning trajectory research, we do that too, but we subject those to interactions with students and we really open our ears to kids thinking and we're willing to see them think differently than we think about those and that's a talent I mean that that doesn't come free it you you have to finally I call it a bread in the bone belief I mean I have a bread in the bone belief that kids are way smarter than we really realize and that that once you start to believe that then you'll trust them, and then they will give you more, and you will learn how to follow their reasoning. And that takes a math educator, typically, to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I would say is I think Common Core, our first start, and it has some of them in there, but there's places in the Common Core where they didn't, I don't think they quite got them right. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. The example has to do with integers. So for some reason, in sixth grade, they put in the notion of introducing integers and basically doing less than greater than relationships. Mm-hmm. And then they held up till seventh grade operating on those integers. That's a very strange kind of notion because logically, I get it. it you know, we'll do a little bit now and more later. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to invent the notion of integers for yourself, you're going to be constructive about it then you are going to be operating with them in various ways earlier on. And so um, we find in some of our work, sometimes our hands feel tied because we're, we're not quite aligning on grade level, but we're trying to reflect how the kids think. But again, I think they're compromises. I think all of us involved in the Common Core had a belief that 
a process of revision of those would be set up such that people could raise these kinds of issues and, and point to places and we could um, improve them over time. And unfortunately, there was never a description of that. Yeah. You've been able to watch numerous shifts and developments in mathematics education over the years, including the retrospective on constructivism that you did a few years ago at PME. Can you say more about that in today's world? I think that's a very kind of difficult question. Um, you know, I think that you had constructivism and it was strong in its ability to help us understand the way kids build their world. And in particular, I still believe that the successor to that work is around modeling. Because just as with constructivism, where you're trying to find viable ways to make sense of the world, models are even more complex ways that you can make sense of the world and you have an understanding that there will be multiple models so you can begin to think about how you compare the models to see why people choose one over the other and what that might mean. So I think that's the genesis of that. I think since that time we've seen a lot more concern about justice and power and equity come out and I think they're terribly important topics for us to be addressing in the field. Most of them tend to not get back to the learning issues that underlie kids' thinking. And, um, and the question is, the big challenge is how do you bring those things together? And then the last thing I'd say on this is I'm quite concerned about the current world where we seem to be mixing up persuasion and rational thought. And it seems to be more and more the case that we accept the notion that persuasion is a worldview and that we have to adapt to what it brings to us. And I think, and this is sort of normalizing things that shouldn't be normalized in this day and age, I think that we really have to get back to understanding reason and push back on being certain that people are able to be critical and knowledgeable thinkers um, to make sure the balance gets back um, to more rational thought. And a lot of that came from my training with Ernst von Glasersfeld, who constantly would remind us that of the importance of, and he lived through World War II, and the, por- the importance of really placing our bets on, on careful and evidence-based thought um, and not letting persuasion become the basis of how things work out and potentially you know, mixing up propaganda and knowledge. I think I understand. <laughs> so final question. And you don't really have to take this too seriously. If you had not worked in mathematics education as a career, what can you imagine yourself having done instead? (laughs) So I find it a delightful question. Um, And I almost, having been just so passionate about math education, it's hard for me to imagine anything else. But if I did do something else, what I would have loved to do, and might still do if I retire, is train border collies because I have a great love of border collies and and animals, and they're smarter than heck. 
Uh, and I like the physicality of the way they move. It's that show. I'd love to train Border Collies. <laughs> That's a perfect answer. <laughs> it could not be more different. So, Jared, thank you again for talking about your work and sharing your experiences with us. I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Kimberly. <laughs>